Section 26 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 58 Irish Ideas, Part 2. We need not carry the reader through the long course of the debates which took place in the House of Commons. The bill was stoutly resisted by Mr. Disraeli and his party. They resisted it as a whole and they also fought it in detail they proposed amendment after amendment in committee and did all they could to stay its progress as well as to alter some of its arrangements but there did not seem to be much of genuine earnestness in the speeches made by mr disraeli the fact that resistance was evidently hopeless had no doubt some effect upon the style of his eloquence his speeches were amusing rather than impressive they were full of good points they sparkled with happy illustrations and allusions odd conceits and bewildering paradoxes but the orator had evidently no faith in the cause he advocated no faith that is to say in the possibility of its success he must have seen too clearly that the church as a state establishment in ireland was doomed and he had not that intensity of interest in its maintenance which would have made him fight the course as he had fought many a course before with all the passionate eloquence of desperation one of his lieutenants mr gathorne hardy was more effective as a champion of the sinking irish church than mr disraeli proved himself to be mr hardy was a man so constituted as to be only capable of seeing one side of a question at a time he was filled with the conviction that the government were attempting an act of spoliation and sacrilege and he stormed against the meditated crime with a genuine energy which occasionally seemed to supply him with something like eloquence a peculiar interest attached to the part taken in the debate by sir roundell palmer it was natural that sir roundell palmer should be with mr gladstone every one expected in the first instance that he would have held high office in the new administration he was one of the very foremost lawyers and the best parliamentary debaters of the day and the woolsack seemed to be his fitting place but sir roundell palmer could not conscientiously agree to the disestablishment of the irish state church he was willing to consent to very extensive alterations and reductions in the establishment but he would not go with mr gladstone all the way to the abolition of the church and he therefore remained outside the ministry and opposed the bill some of the debates in the house of lords were more interesting than those in the commons we have already referred to the eloquence and fervour with which lord derby opposed the proposition of the government two speeches delivered from the bench where the bishops sit attracted special attention one may be said to have marked the close the other the opening of a career one was by dr thirlwall bishop of st david's the other by dr mcgee bishop of peterborough the bishop of st david's spoke in favour of the bill and addressed himself particularly to the demolition of the superstitious sophism which would lead people to believe that the revenues of a purely human institution like the irish church were the sacred possession of heaven and that to touch them even with the hand of reforming legislation would be an act of sacrilege 
Dr. Thurwall well maintained on this occasion his noble reputation, both as an orator and as a man of intellect. Mr. Mill, in his autobiography, has given an interesting account of his first hearing Dr. Thurwall at one of the public discussions of a society in London some forty years before. The speaker with whom I was most struck, Mr. Mill says, was Thurwall the historian, since Bishop of St. David's, then a chancery barrister, unknown except by a high reputation for eloquence acquired at the Cambridge Union before the era of Austin and Macaulay. His speech was an answer to one of mine. Before he had uttered ten sentences, I set him down as the best speaker I had ever heard, and I have never since heard anyone whom I placed above him. Dr. McGee, on the other hand, was only beginning his career in the House of Lords. He had been but a short time Bishop of Peterborough. He had been raised to the Episcopal bench, it was said, chiefly because Mr. Disraeli, when in office, believed he saw in him the capacity to make a great parliamentary debater and champion of the political interests of the Church. Dr. McGee delivered a speech of remarkable fluency, energy, and vividness, a speech which might fairly be classed among the best efforts of the leading orators on either side of the controversy. It was more like the speech of a layman than of a prelate, although indeed it recalled, in some of its pugnacious passages, the recollection of the fighting bishops of the Middle Ages. If the fate of the Irish Church could have been averted or even postponed by impassioned eloquence, the Bishop of Peterborough might alone have done something to stay the stroke of doom. But the fate of the institution was sealed at the moment that Mr. Gladstone returned from the general elections in command of a liberal majority. The House of Lords were prudent enough not to set themselves against the clear declaration of national opinion. Many amendments were introduced and discussed, and some of these led to a controversy between the two Houses of Parliament, but the controversy ended in compromise. There were at one time rumours that the peers would reject or greatly delay the bill, and Mr. Bright wrote an angry letter on the subject addressed to a Birmingham meeting, in which he warned the House of Lords that by throwing themselves athwart the national course they might meet with accidents not pleasant for them to think of. Such a letter coming from a cabinet minister created a good deal of amazement and was made the subject of some sharp discussion in both Houses of Parliament. It was clear that Mr. Bright did not intend to allow his official position to interfere greatly with the emphatic nature of his utterances on public questions. Shocked and scandalized, as some of the peers professed to be, it is not impossible that the letter did some public service by virtue of its very indiscretion. It may have given timely warning to the House of Lords of the dangerous agitation that would arise if they were to set themselves in deliberate opposition to the will of the vast majority of the people. Rumors, too, were in circulation about the same time of the determination of the government to create new peers in such a number as to make passing the bill a certainty. Happily, however, it proved that there was no need for any such intervention on the part of the ministers and the crown. The time had gone by when the House of Lords cared to exhibit itself as a mere instrument of resistance to the measures of the representative chamber. The most formidable step the peers took 
was to carry on the debate on the second reading of the bill until three o'clock in the morning the second reading was carried by one hundred and seventy nine to one hundred and forty six votes and the remainder of the work done by the lords was only a series of attempts generally unsuccessful to obtain here and there a small compromise on some of the less important clauses of the bill on july twenty sixth eighteen sixty nine the measure for the disestablishment of the irish church received the royal assent meanwhile the wildest excitement prevailed out of doors among the defenders of the state church furious denunciations of the government resounded from platform and from pulpit even in measured and solemn convocation itself the most impassioned and vehement outcries were heard one divine spoke of the measure as a great national sin another stigmatized it as altogether ungodly wicked and abominable a third called upon the queen to interfere personally and exhorted her rather to jeopardize her crown in the effort than leave the irish church to be destroyed before her eyes a great meeting was held in exeter hall at which mr gladstone was stigmatized as a traitor to his queen his country and his god and one reverend gentleman described the government as a cabinet of brigands at a meeting held in ireland a protestant clergyman reminded the pastors of every protestant church that sooner than give their churches up to any apostate system a barrel of gunpowder and a box of matches would send them flying to the winds of heaven this was however only superfluous fury no one proposed to turn the protestant clergymen out of their churches it is not impossible that the fiery ecclesiastic who gave this guy fox advice was himself ministering in a church which had been taken by force from its catholic owners the agitation against the bill produced however no sensible effect upon the mind of the country at large it thundered and blazed for a few days or weeks here and there and then after occasional grumblings and sputterings sank into mere silence the irish church was therefore disestablished and it was to a certain extent disendowed only to a certain extent as fortunate as cleopatra it contrived to retain enough to purchase what it had made known the time during which the measure was in progress was turned to good account by the authorities of the establishment the bill provided that no new interests should be created in the interval between its passing and the actual disestablishment which was to take place on january first eighteen seventy one but while the measure was still under discussion some of the rulers of the church thought it convenient to create as many new interests as possible new curates entitled to compensation were made with an astonishing rapidity and the incomes of some of the clergy were increased with liberal hand some sharp controversy was afterwards created by the manner in which the period of grace was thus turned to worldly and profitable account and there can be little doubt that the effect of the policy of disestablishment was deprived of some of its satisfactory influence on the mind of ireland by the over-liberal opportunities for compensation allowed to vested interests it would be impossible however not to admit that the difficulties in mr gladstone's way must have warned him that a rigorous dealing with such interests would prove dangerous to the success of his measure the great fact was 
that by disestablishing the Irish church, he proclaimed that the policy of religious ascendancy was banished forever from Ireland, and that the reign of equality had begun. Lord Derby did not long survive the passing of the measure which he had opposed with such fervour and so much pathetic dignity. His last speech was that which he delivered in the House of Lords against the second reading of the Irish Church Bill on June 17, 1869. I am an old man, he said. I have already passed three score years and ten. My official life is entirely closed. My political life is nearly so and in the course of nature my natural life cannot now be long. It was sooner ended, perhaps, than anyone expected who heard him deliver that last eloquent protest against the measure of reform which he was unable to resist. He died before the Irish state church had ceased to live. Doomed as it was, it outlasted its eloquent champion. In the interval between the passing and the practical operation of Mr. Gladstone's bill, on October 23rd, Lord Derby died at Knowsley, the residence of the Stanleys in Lancashire. His death made no great gap in English politics. He had for some time ceased to assert any really influential place in public affairs. His career had been eminent and distinguished, but its day had long been done. Lord Derby never was a statesman. He was not even a great leader of a party but he was a splendid figurehead for conservatism in or out of power. He was on the whole a superb specimen of the English political nobleman, proud of soul but sweet in temper and genial in manner, dignified as men are who feel instinctively that dignity pertains to them, and therefore never think of how to assert or to maintain it. He was eminently fitted by temperament, by nature, and by fortune for the place it was given him to hold. His parliamentary oratory has already become a tradition. It served its purpose admirably for the time. It showed, as Macaulay said, that Lord Derby possessed the very instinct of parliamentary debate. It was not weighted with the thought which could have secured it a permanent place in political literature, nor had it the imagination which would have lifted it into an atmosphere above the level of Hansard. In Lord Derby's own day the unanimous opinion of both Houses of Parliament would have given him a place among the very foremost of parliamentary orators. Many competent judges went so far as to set him distinctly above all living rivals. Time has not ratified this judgment. It is impossible that the influence of an orator could have faded so soon if he had really been entitled to the praise which many of his contemporaries would freely have rendered to Lord Derby. The charm of his voice and style, his buoyant readiness, his rushing fluency, his rich profusion of words, his happy knack of illustration, allusion, and retort, all these helped to make men believe him a much greater orator than he really was. Something, too, was due to the influence of his position. It seemed a sort of condescension on the part of a great noble that he should consent to be an eloquent debater also, and to contend in parliamentary sword-play against professional champions like Peel and O'Connell and Broom. It must count for something in Lord Derby's fame 
that while far inferior to any of these men in political knowledge and in mental capacity, he could compare as an orator with each in turn, and were it but for his own day, were it but while the magic of his presence and his voice was yet a living influence, could be held by so many to have borne without disadvantage the test of comparison. When the Irish church had been disposed of, Mr. Gladstone at once directed his energies to the Irish land system. The state church had been declared by many to be merely a sentimental grievance. The land system of Ireland, if it was to be accounted a grievance at all, must have been acknowledged to be one of a terribly practical character. Ireland is essentially an agricultural country. It has few manufactures, not many large towns. Dublin, Belfast, Cork, Limerick, Waterford. These are the only towns that could be called large. Below these we come to places that in most other countries would be spoken of as villages or hamlets. The majority of the population of Ireland live on the land and by the land. The condition of the Irish tenantry may be painted effectively in a single touch when it is said that they were tenants at will. That fact would of itself be almost enough to account for the poverty and misery of the agricultural classes in Ireland. But there were other conditions, too, which tended the same way. The land of Ireland was divided among a comparatively small number of landlords, and the landlords were, as a rule, strangers, the representatives of a title acquired by conquest. Many of them were habitual absentees, who would as soon have thought of living in Ashanti as in Munster or Connaught. An able writer, Mr. James Godkin, in his Land War in Ireland, endeavors to make the condition of Ireland clear to English readers by asking them to consider what England would be under similar circumstances. Imagine, he says, that in consequence of rebellions against the Normans, the land of England had been confiscated three or four times, after desolating wars and famines, so that all the native proprietors were expelled, and the land was parceled out to French soldiers and adventurers, on condition that the foreign planters should assist in keeping down the mere English by force of arms. Imagine that the English, being crushed by a cruel penal code for a century, were allowed to reoccupy the soil as mere tenants at will, under the absolute power of their French landlords. If all this be imagined by English legislators and English writers, they will be better able to understand the Irish land question and to comprehend the nature of Irish difficulties, as well as the justice of feeble, insincere, and baffled statesmen in casting the blame of Irish misery and disorder on the unruly and barbarous nature of Irishmen. In truth, the Irish agricultural population turned out exactly as any other race of human beings would have done under similar conditions. They held the land which was their only means of living at the mercy of the landlord or his agent. They had no interest in being industrious and improving their land. If they improved the patch of soil they worked on, their rent was almost certain to be raised, or they were turned out of the land without receiving a farthing of compensation for their improvements. End of section 26